Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a new trial has been ordered for the two men convicted in the 2013 Via Rail terror plot. So where does this case go from here? The Alberta government has released its first quarter fiscal update. Does it give us some clues for what might be in the upcoming budget? Also, a new report adds to the evidence that safe injection sites save lives. Plus, a look at some of the changes in the Alberta beer industry and whether things are still trending in the right direction. Two men who plotted to derail a passenger train and kill scores of people are tonight facing years in jail. Their target was a via train between Toronto and New York. After 10 long days of deliberations, a jury found the pair guilty of eight of the nine terror-related charges. That from Global News, March 22nd, 2015, after 10 days of deliberation, uh, two men, Jaheb Esegar and Rayed Jasser, were convicted in connection with this Via Rail plot, a 2013 plot to target a Via Rail, da- uh, Via Rail daily train service between Toronto and New York City. Obviously, many people would have died had that plot been successful. So this was a pretty significant investigation and a pretty significant disrupted terror plot. And the fact that uh, the RCMP and security officials were able to interrupt this plot, make the arrest, secure the convictions was incredibly significant. So therefore, this news today that a retrial has been ordered is very significant. Ontario's highest court found the jury that convicted Raid Jasser and Shaheb Ezegayer was improperly selected. They were found guilty in 2015 on a total of eight terror-related charges between them. They were sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole till 2023. The two challenged their convictions and lawyers for Jasser argued the trial judge mistakenly rejected their client's request regarding the method of jury selection. Ezegayer represents himself, but he does have a lawyer appointed for him, and that attorney agrees with the new trial. Roger Ward, the Canadian Press, Toronto. So, here we are, six years after this plot, four years after these convictions, the prospect of putting these two men on trial once again, or letting the whole thing go. Not not an appealing choice that the Crown has before it, but given the significance of this investigation in this case, I don't think there's any way we can just let this go. But this could be problematic, even as it was at the outset. It was a complex case. They were not convicted of all counts. And that was 10 days of juror deliberation. But this all hinges on how that jury was selected in the first place. And it might feel like a frustrating technicality, given the nature of this. But the law is the law, I suppose. Joining us for some thoughts on the significance of this development today, where this all goes from here. Very pleased to welcome the program, Leah West, a lecturer 
of National Security and Intelligence at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, a former counsel with the Department of Justice herself. Leah, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, so just how big is this in your view? I think it's significant uh, for a couple of different reasons, probably most notably because this is one of the crown jewels in the RCP and the public prosecution um, services um, efforts um, to prosecute terrorism. This was a big investigation, a big plot, had a lot of players, including an undercover officer from the United States, from the FBI, um, long, long trial and protracted uh, jury deliberations that eventually resulted in um, and a conviction for these two individuals now being overturned. Um, so that's not nothing in my, in my books. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the circumstances on the ground, I think, have, have changed since this trial was originally brought that could have an effect on a retrial. Well, and I guess in the meantime, too, I mean, the, these two now have the opportunity to apply for bail. I mean, it would, would be quite startling, I think, to, to actually see these men walk free, at least on bail. Is that, is that a realistic possibility? Um, well, the the fact that they could apply is, is realistic, and it's true. They have a right to apply for bail while they await a new trial, and that uh, application would have to be made to the Court of Appeal. Um, I'm not sure that they would necessarily get bail, but there is a possibility, depending on the plan that would be put forward by defense counsel and perhaps their um, their uh, behavior in prison. Um, Mr. Jasser does have connections to the community in which he was tried. Mr. Esseguer, however, does not and has a, had a history of mental health. So I think it would probably be less likely that he would be released. But um, who's to say? And yeah, they do have a right to apply for bail now. Uh, let's talk about how, how we got to this point, and, and this might seem to a lot of people almost like a technicality, or it's an aspect mm-hmm. of, of our jury system maybe people don't understand. So th- this is deemed to be then an error by the original judge involving jury selection, what's known as triers, uh, static Correct. triers versus rotating triers. I- explain what that means. So essentially, um, in this case, the judge said that, yes, um, jurors could be challenged for cause for two reasons. One, because of the media attention that had been brought um, leading up to this arrest. I don't know if you recall, but there was a big press conference at the time. Um, You know, there was poster boards and, you know, images behind the cops as they made this announcement. So a lot of people um, had at least an understanding of what this case was. And also giving the, um, the racial minority and the religious beliefs of the men that there was a reason to potentially challenge juries for cause that they couldn't be impartial. Now, there's two ways you can do that. You can either have two people who are in a jury pool, but will definitely not be jurors, who will, when a challenge is brought and someone's asked questions, decide whether or not they believe that the person being challenged should serve on the jury, whether they can be impartial. Mm-hmm. That's uh, In a static situation, it's the same two people that do that for everyone. In a rotating system, it's as people join the jury pool, so as they're found to be um, impartial and they're sworn in as a jury member, they become the next triers. So, you know, once they pass the test, if you want to say that, they become the next person to hear the challenges for the next um, potential jurors. And the reason why this is an an issue is because if the static triers have some sort of um, 
preconceived notions or they have their own bias, they can taint every juror that's selected. Whereas a rotating trier, you know, they, they rotate through. So you get less um, of one individual having an impact on how the entire jury is constituted. Uh, and that's interesting. Now, it, I suppose it's it's theoretically possible that the Crown could appeal this to the Supreme Court of Canada, but but given what the Ontario Court of Appeal has laid out, this is a unanimous decision. I mean, there's been other case law around this issue of jurors. Uh, is there any likelihood of a successful appeal to the Supreme Court here, in your view? Um, I, I suspect that the Crown will attempt an appeal. Um, whether or not this is the type of thing the, court of, the Supreme Court would take up, um, I question because realistically the law at issue here was decided in 2017. So, you know, what the proper mechanism is for selecting the type of jury that was decided in a previous case. And the Supreme court refused to hear an appeal about that. Um, In this case, it's the impact of an improperly constituted jury, realistically an improperly constituted court, on a trial proceeding and on this specific trial proceeding. So unless the Crown is going to argue that um, the Court of Appeal made an error in law somewhere in their judgment, um, and that is a convincing argument for the Supreme Court, um, I don't see it being something that the Supreme Court could pick up, but um, people have been trying to predict the Supreme Court for a long time, and uh, we don't always get it right, so who knows. Well, that's true. Uh, if then we assume, though, this is going to go to a new trial, as you'd alluded to, um, you know, the, it, it raises some complications. I mean, it was a complex trial the first time around. A lot of time has passed. I suppose one significant development is the fact that this uh, undercover FBI agent has gone very much public. He wrote a book about all of this. So how, how much are things now complicated going into potentially a, a second trial? I think, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the, the the facts on the ground have changed. And like you said, um, there is now a book that details um, the key star witnesses role in this investigation. And in it, he's actually not that flattering when he talks about um, the Canadian security services who are involved. So the defense could use that to their advantage. And also if there's anything in the book that exaggerates his role or is contradictory from something he said under oath or says under oath this time, that, that leads him open and leaves opportunity for the defense to question the star witness's credibility. The other thing is that um, Chea Bessaguer has been undergoing mental treatment and from my understanding is um, more willing to participate in his defense. So if he were actually, he didn't participate at all in the trial the first time around. All of these applications were bought by Mr. Jaster's um, counsel. Should that change in a second trial? Should Mr. Essegayer actually put up a defense? That would significantly change the, uh, how the trial plays out. I mean, it seems like quite a dilemma for the Crown. I mean, they can't just not take this to, to trial again. They can't just let this go. But the prospect uh, of an acquittal, uh, I mean, it, an acquittal would be disastrous, wouldn't it? It would be, and I agree. I can't see the Crown not bringing this trial, but it will be costly. Um, it will be long and time-consuming. Um, the The alternative is some sort of um, plea deal, and that is, you know, an available option now that the trial has been reordered. Um, but uh, I really don't see um, them not being retried, given um, the nature of the offenses. Well, certainly significant development today. We'll see where it all goes from here. Leah, thanks so much for the insight and appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks. Thanks very much.
There you go. That's Leah West, uh, expert in national security and intelligence at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, uh, talking about this pretty significant de- development today that these two men convicted in this Via Rail plot will potentially face a new trial. We have flat revenues. We have increasing expenses, all on a trajectory uh, that the previous government put us on that would reach $100 billion in debt uh, in in the very uh, not-too-distant future. That's uh, Finance Minister Travis Taves today talking about Alberta's uh, fiscal situation, presenting the first quarter fiscal update. Uh, Now, as he says, revenues are flat. Uh, there's about $13 billion more in actual revenue, about the same as last year. Resource revenue was $164 million higher from April to June. But there's concern because operating expenses, debt servicing costs are going up. Finance minister says there needs to be spending restraint. As a province, we must live within our means and curb expenses. And we need to start doing this today to ensure a viable future of quality frontline services for all Albertans. Now, we're not going to get a budget from this government until late October, probably after the federal election. I, I suspect in that sense, maybe the timing is, is somewhat deliberate. And what's interesting, too, is that um, it, it's, this first quarter update was rather thin on details. And like I say, we'll, we'll learn more, obviously, uh, in the upcoming budget. But it seems pretty clear that uh, this, this government is going to focus on belt tightening. And maybe that's long overdue. Joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Jack Mintz, President's Fellow at the School of Public Policy of the University of Calgary. Dr. Mintz, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you know, we didn't get a lot of details as to what might be uh, coming in, in way of uh, cuts, what we might be getting in, in the budget. But uh, do, you, do you get any kind of a sense of, of where the government's going here? <laughs> well, first of all, it was a very slim document. I mean, we're mm-hmm. talking about four pages that were published, and it wasn't, uh, and it was uh, almost. <laughs> it almost looked like a, uh, you know, a piece that I would kind of write as a as a quick uh, <laughs> as a quick overview of something. Um, and it is only one quarter. And I think, uh, I mean, I think the government is quite right that uh, you know things are still not in great shape. Uh, oh, you know, when you uh, look at some of the forecasts in GDP for Alberta this year, uh, some suggesting a decline of uh, of a percentage point in in GDP. That's that's quite worrisome, and uh, and uh, and certainly, uh, you know, we're not at the point yet that we can say that the you know the uh, Alberta economy is going to be really taking off. Um, and so, I think the the concerns about uh, you know the fiscal plan. I think will I think. Uh, we'll hear a lot more, I think, if uh, if we uh, see the McKinnon uh, blue uh, blue ribbon panel report, because they're going to have some long run forecasts, and then we'll have a better sense of you know how deep the problem is uh, right. fiscally for and how sustainable it is for Alberta, uh, and then that will give us a better picture uh, about what kind of um, toughness is going to be needed vis-a-vis uh, the spending side. The government is very clear; it's not going to increase taxes. Right. And, and I mean, it does speak to the, the, the kind of double challenge the government faces here, because we do need to get our fiscal house in order. But we also need to, to try to get this economy going and try to spur some growth. Is that necessarily in conflict? Can the government, you know, sort of do both hand in hand? Um, well, actually, it's very interesting. I, I've um, been spending some time um, uh, reading about, uh, you know, what's been called uh, austerity um, 
and there's been some very good work done around around the world on it. And this is when governments get into serious problems, and they do need to deal with their debt problem. And and so they, one calls it uh, instead of you know austerity budgets, fiscal consolidation. You know, such as do you, you know, do you cut, uh, you know, do you cut spending, or do you, uh, or do you increase taxes? And it's quite interesting, actually, what uh, uh, especially some work has recently shown that you know if the government, let's say, tries to raise taxes as share of GDP by one percent. It actually causes an eventual decline in, in uh, GDP on average across all these countries over the past uh, 30 years uh, by uh, by four percentage points. Um, on the other hand, if they cut spending uh, by one percentage point, uh, it, its impact on GDP is somewhere between zero and and minus one percent. And in some cases, you can actually get some growth going, and that that's if you do the right sort of cuts. Uh, you know, you don't want to cut things that add to productivity and uh, spending, uh, and that's, you know, like education and, and the infrastructure. Um, or at least make sure you do them right. Um, and then, but you also uh, have, if you have some judicious tax cuts, uh, maybe a, as even part of an austerity package, that actually could do quite well. And if you look at Britain, for example, after the 2008 uh, financial crisis, uh, they, you know, raised the number of taxes and they also cut spending uh, quite a bit. Uh, but they, very interestingly, cut corporate taxes uh, because that was actually one of the few um, things they could do to try to boost the economy without costing a lot of money. Well, it's interesting. Well, where, where do the uh, corporate tax reductions here in Alberta fit into that? Do you think? Uh, well, I think you know, in, in a sense, you know, the the corporate tax reductions are not going to cost Alberta a lot of money. Uh, one of the reasons is that now that Alberta is going to have a much more competitive corporate income tax rate, uh, a lot of uh, uh, companies are already putting plans into uh, uh, put more profits into United into Alberta, which is going to be a cost to Ontario and some of the other provinces that uh, it's going to result from that. Uh, uh, but uh, but that actually uh, means that the cost of the corporate rate cuts is not very much. And, of course, that also means that when you try to raise corporate rates, which the NDP did in 2015, you don't raise that much money. In fact, their corporate tax collections kept dropping due to the, cost, the economy uh, doing badly. But uh, they certainly didn't do very well in collecting taxes. Well, it's interesting. You're seeing it already, though. I mean, you know, the critics saying, well, where are the jobs? We cut corporate taxes. We're not seeing any, any new jobs. I mean, that, that seems like a pretty short-sighted view of, of things, isn't it? Well, jobs take time, and there's other factors that influence jobs. I mean, obviously, the pipeline constraints are having a huge impact on jobs in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, you could do all the other policies you want, but as long as you don't, you know, if you can't deal with some of the key issues like the regulatory system applying to the oil and gas sector in Alberta, you're obviously going to impact on the on the province in terms of jobs. And it's hard to use other policies to overcome that. But it still doesn't mean that uh, corporate rate cuts aren't a bad thing to do because there's other sectors of the economy that are going to benefit, uh, you know, including, uh, you know, manufacturing and service sectors and agriculture and forestry. Uh, and uh, they'll get some benefit associated with that corporate rate cut, and we'll have to see over time. Uh, what happens to the jobs outlook? Yeah, as, as it pertains to Alberta's debt situation, and and I think it, you know it's fair to say that maybe we didn't need to be in the situation we're in had had more prudent decisions been made. But looking at where we're at right now, how, how dire is this situation? I mean, how much urgency does there need to be, in your view, in 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 tackling the debt? Well, you know, it's a it's an interesting question because you know what uh, Alberta started off with with positive net assets, and in fact, the time when I did the saving study for 
uh, the Stelmac government. Uh, you know, Alberta had you know thirty-eight billion dollars in net assets. Uh, in other words, they had more money saved than, or money put into assets than they did. Uh, 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 you know, than they did in debt. In fact, they were almost out of debt. You know, had almost eliminated all debt uh, at that point. Uh, now they're you know they have gone into net debt. Uh, net financial debt. Uh, The new numbers don't provide too much uh, with respect to that. Um, But uh, the net debt has has increased, you know, has come to closer to, uh, well, I'm not quite sure what the number is now, but it's, uh, you know, certainly it's uh, in the 40 to $50 billion range, or 60, anyway, and that, uh, uh, you know, that's quite a big reversal. And and for a province which is rich in natural resources, Every time we collect royalties, we're selling off assets to, um, you know, to pay for current government spending. And really, we should be investing it into financial assets. So, so a province like Alberta really shouldn't be having much debt at all, and uh, yeah, if any. And and so, uh, I think it is a concern. And of course, we did see back in the 1980s, uh, during the Getty period, that uh, debt ran up so much that actually. Uh, by the time Ralph Klein took over, uh, debt per capita in Alberta was higher than any other province. Right. And so, uh, you know, we're marching to that level again of very high levels of debt. So I think the, the province has to deal with it. There's a lot of interest expense that is incurred to service that debt, and that interest expense could be used to, you know, to pay off, uh, you know, hospitals and uh, schools and all sorts of other things that people would like to have. Uh, and so, you know, spending, you know, 500 and you know, uh, million. Uh, well, I'm not sure what the total interest expense is. Again, the, the new the new fiscal update has so little information; it's not very uh, particularly <laughs> helpful. But uh, you know, but uh, I would say that probably a million. You know, we're we're looking at a significant amount of money already going into interest expense, and and that money could have been used for funding all sorts of good things in Alberta at this time. So we have to get we have to get our uh, fiscal act in order. Yeah, indeed. Well, we'll see what uh, we learn through the, the uh, McKinnon report, and obviously I guess we'll get a budget uh, late October. Dr. Mintz, thanks for your insight here today. Appreciate making some time for us. Okay, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Take care. Jack Mintz, President's Fellow with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, 403-974-8255-974-TALK. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of questions there. What, what is the number one priority for the government? Is it getting the economy growing? Is it getting a handle on the debt? And, and is it, you know, does, one, does it have to be one or the other? Right? And so Jackman's made an interesting point uh, about how you go about making spending cuts and how a, a, an agenda of growth can also include an agenda of austerity, for lack of a better term. There's been a lot of debate and controversy around the concept of harm reduction as it applies to the opioid crisis, specifically the supervised consumption sites have been set up to try to save lives in the midst of this crisis. The Alberta government, the new Alberta government, seems to have a somewhat different view of this than their predecessors. They have uh, established a panel uh, to review supervised consumption sites, but appears as though uh, this panel is going to focus more on the social and economic effects of these consumption sites as opposed to or at least including the question of whether they're working as intended i.e. saving lives 
Now, certainly there's been concern raised uh, about crime and disorder uh, around these facilities. Certainly that's been an issue in Calgary since the uh, supervised consumption site was established at the Sheldon Schumer Center. And I don't think anyone's suggesting we ignore that. But certainly if we're talking about supervised consumption sites, we can't ignore the evidence as to whether it's saving lives. And there's a new report out that shows overwhelmingly, in fact, that these are saving lives. Now, this is a report looking at the data since 2017 at the facilities in Calgary, Edmonton, Lethbridge, Grand Prairie, and Red Deer. All told, over 4,300 overdoses have been successfully reversed. In other words, without a single fatality. On top of that, more than 3,700 ambulance calls have been averted. That represents a cost savings to the system. More than 35,000 referrals for site clients to access other services, including close to 11,000 for addiction and treatment service. So that's another important aspect of all of this, is helping people get a foot in the door into the healthcare system and hopefully then accessing those, those kinds of services. So this is, is certainly something I think the Alberta government needs to consider in assessing uh, what the impact of these sites have been. Uh, joining us to talk more about this report is Celeste Hayward, Executive Director of the Alberta Community Council on HIV. Celeste, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me today. Uh, tell us a bit more then about this uh, about this particular study and, and what it was you were looking at. Well, we started we started the study because we realized there really wasn't a provincial picture of what was happening at these different sites. And all of these sites are actually member organizations of the ACCH. And we've done a lot of work to support them in this very difficult work that they've undertaken in their communities. And so, like a couple of months ago, we started putting this together before Kenny announced that he was doing the review, in fact, because we felt that there was an untold story here that we needed to sort of bridge the story between, yes, harm reduction and no harm reduction. And really just take a, a different kind of view on what was happening at the SES site, supervised consumption site. Right. I, and I mean, this, this data is there, I guess, if the Alberta government wants to, to examine it, find it for itself. But uh, is it your concern maybe that they're not as interested in this, this kind of information? Well, I think one target audience is the government. But I think this, this, the importance of this report is also to bring awareness to the everyday Albertan that can access and read and hear these news reports and and have an opportunity to reach out to their local supervised consumption site to actually talk about some of the data we found. Because we find that a lot of the complaints and arguments in community, they always boils down to new debris and crime and community impact. And so we really wanted to uh, highlight, let's look at what those things are. Let's actually look at the truth of what the, what's happening. And let's, because tra- we can actually track that, especially with needle debris. We can track needle debris for a number of years. And I mean, the crime index, which was just released as well, you can you can track that for uh, many, many, many years. So mm-hmm. we, we really wanted to have a place where, uh, create a document that could just bring all of that together, all the different views from a different sort of perspective. And yeah, and influence, obviously influence government in the end. Right, and, and I think, look, I think this is, is hugely important information, what you've gathered here, but, but how, do we, how do we factor it all in? I mean, how, how do we look at this in a big-picture way by also, as you say, factoring in the impact of these facilities or what we might be seeing in terms of d- debris or, or crime or disorder? Well, I think supervised consumption service sites, these are new things, and it's change in our communities. 
And is, is a supervised consumption site a, will in the long term have a positive outcome in our communities? And from our study, you can see that it reduces needle debris in communities that they've, they've started. All of these sites have uh, methods and ways to start addressing needle debris in the community. And the SCS itself has disposal uh, places for the clients that are coming in. So I, I think that's an important aspect of the study. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go through what the, what this found, and okay. it's pretty remarkable that um, you know the, the point of these facilities was to save lives, was to prevent people yep. from dying of overdose, and and certainly appears to have, have done exactly that. It, absolutely, I mean that people are at four thousand three hundred overdoses is a lot of lives saved that could have been happening in the public, out in the public, could have been happening in the bathrooms of the libraries like these are things that that these people that this service is now there to save lives and, and, and it's really super it's super effective mm-hmm. well it clearly is now i mean to put it in context over the last few years we've seen over two thousand deaths in alberta as a result of opioids so certainly the, the potential for uh deaths is very real and the fact then that um there's not been a single overdose death at these facilities i mean that that is that is a measure of success isn't it well, and I mean, these facil- most of these facilities started in 2017, so we only really have, uh, we're only going into the second year, we're in the second year of data. Mm-hmm. And so if, you're, if the argument is, well, where's the impact on the numbers? People are still dying of overdoses. There's still needles in my park. You know, I think we're starting to see the impact. We're starting to see the needle debris going down. We're starting to see the um, quarterly overdose data. There's starting to be a change. So I think with not just supervised consumption sites, but there's a, there's many other services that are going on in a, in at the same time as supervised consumption. All of those harm reduction services together, I think, are working on a pathway to sort of address the opioid crisis and the now emerging uh, meth uh, issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, related to that number, over three thousand seven hundred averted EMS calls. What, what, what does that mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, that means that they didn't. There was no requirement to call EMS. That the overdose was addressed on site, and EMS wasn't wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. So, when normally the, there's a because there's nurses, right? These all of these supervised consumption sites have health staff on them that can um, address and take care of health issues. Another aspect to all of this, and I think this is important to, to consider as well, um, that when it comes to HIV, when it comes to hepatitis C, yeah. uh, the ability to reduce the spread of those kinds of infections through these facilities, that, that, that's important too. Huge. I mean, if you look at the rates of hepatitis C in Canada, the, the, num- the primary transmission, source of transmission is injection drug use. So if you can provide a safe space where they can get clean supplies, they're not sharing supplies, you're going to stop and, and address the, the spread of HCV. And there's actually already been a number of studies that have come out to show that things like opioid agonist therapy and um, all of these different harm reduction approaches like SCSs do make a difference in the spread of HCV and HIV. So, in fact, given all of that, and you, you argue in this study that uh, supervised consumption sites provide cost savings with an estimated $5 yeah. saved for every $1 spent. How do we arrive well, at that? Well, I mean, cost effectiveness, it is a difficult. I think this is based off of a study that came out of Vancouver. 
And essentially, people who are going to the supervised consumption sites, they're not showing up in emergency departments. They're not showing up in their long-term health issues are being picked up by the staff at these organizations. And they're being referred into other um, services that are in the organization. So really, these organizations that are, that are housing the supervised consumption sites and run the supervised consumption sites are access points for health care. And so instead of, you know, people who have an issue, turning it from a simple cut on the leg to all of a sudden it's gangrene and they have to get it cut off. It's getting cut early because they're going into these the supervised consumption sites. They're getting seen by people. They're getting referred into the rest of the organization. They're building relationships. They're, they're building trust. And then they start asking and getting help for little things and big things. And then mm-hmm. it just gets bigger than that. Well, and, and yeah, and, and that gets to the heart of the matter, too, because, you know, obviously the numbers of people going to these sites, obviously the number of people having overdose is reversed. I mean, that, that includes people who are are visiting regularly, maybe people even who have had multiple overdoses reversed, that, that the addiction is still there. Um, so how, how do we how do we look at it through that lens? Because ultimately, harm reduction is about saving lives first and foremost. But yeah. addressing the addiction issue is is the longer term goal here. Well, I think that's a really good point. Um, one of the one of the one of the approaches to addiction issues issues is abstinence, and we we found and there's a plethora of studies that show this. Abstinence models have a very low, very low success rate. Mm-hmm. Where if you're talking about the long road to you know a person coming in out of addiction and uh, substance use and moving into, I think the long term goal, right? It's little steps. It's accessing the service it's knowing that somebody is there that cares about their life then it's about there's more people at this organization who care about your life and there's things that we can do to help and then there's things that our organization can do to help you navigate the the processes in alberta health services or in other services in the community and then you know that that person comes back and starts to volunteer and creates like they run they start working in the peer the chill out rooms and they so then those things start to build more and more stability. And as the person becomes more and more stable, they start to make more and more different choices. And you know what I mean? Like it's this process, slow steps that bring people to stability in their lives and, um, and function, high-functioning uh, living, yeah. everyday good living. Well, as you say, I mean, this is meant to illustrate for the public uh, the impact these, these sites have had. I mean, what, what's your concern then if, if these were to be shut down? So the issue, the opioid crisis started before the supervised consumption sites started. Mm-hmm. And if you shut them down, all of the issues that are starting to be addressed by supervised consumption are going to come back to community. People didn't start using drugs so that they could go to a substance, a supervised consumption site. They already were using. There's nobody that's like, oh, there's a supervised consumption site open. I'm now going to go and start using drugs. These right. people, this, this, this community, this substance using community, it already is there. So the issues that you had before, they're going to come back because now you've taken away this service that provides this entryway to health access, healthcare access. Important point. People can read more at acch.ca. So, Les, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. So last Hayward, Executive Director of the Alberta Community Council on HIV, ACCH.ca. They have this report posted there.
been a while since we talked about the uh, Alberta beer industry, and there's a couple of developments uh, that have happened recently I wanted to focus on. Um, one of them involves the tax structure, and I suspect we're going to see more changes coming. Obviously, the previous government took a specific view uh, when it came to, to uh, the markup, when it came to trying to encourage growth in the industry. I suspect the new government is going to uh, continue to take a, a different view. So more changes may be coming. Uh, but one change that occurred just recently an adjustment to the beer tax policy that that seems aimed primarily at at one brewery in particular, and the concern being raised by Calgary-based Big Rock and the losses they were suffering, the layoffs that resulted from that, which they said was attributable to the existing uh, tax structure. So as of September 13th, the reduced beer markup that currently is applied to small craft brewers producing less than 50,000 hectoliters will include those who brew up to 400,000 hectoliters. Uh, And and so that's going to have a direct impact on on Big Rock. Now, the other thing that occurred, though, and this this is a story from last week, uh, one Calgary brewery has decided that it's time to throw in the towel. Red Bison Brewery says it's unable to stay afloat in what has become a very competitive industry in Alberta. And that's the thing. As much as the industry has grown and new breweries have started up, there's no guarantee. And that comes to any industry, I suppose, that perhaps long-term the direction is growth, but along the way, uh, some are not going to succeed. I think we're, we're now well over 100 craft breweries in Alberta. And like I said, there's no guarantee that every one of those is going to succeed. But I think there are, there are some warning signs in what happened to Red Bison. And the challenges with getting product to market, the challenges involved in getting your product on tap in bars and restaurants. So joining us to talk about all of this is Mike McNeil, Executive Director of the Alberta Small Brewers Association. Mike, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's talk about these tax changes, first of all. Uh, I mean, is it your sense that there are more changes coming that we're likely to get a a much different approach from this new government than, than from their predecessors? Well, recently the new government announced a change to the small brewer's markup, which, as you outlined, now extends beyond 50,000 hectoliters up to 400,000 hectoliters, which is in line with how the AGLC actually defines a small craft brewer. So that is a significant change for our industry, and it's something that the new government has asked for our opinion on, and we're supportive, uh, mainly because, as you mentioned, there were some challenges with how the previous markup uh, impacted Big Rock, which is our largest craft brewery and our oldest craft brewery here in the province. But also it limited our uh, perspective for growth, our future for growth in our industry, because there was a sharp decline past 50,000 hectoliters in the benefit for small brewers. So going beyond that allows for our brewers to actually plan for a future to become larger brewers and larger economic contributors to the province. So at this at this moment, Big Rock is the only Alberta brewery, a craft brewery, that would would be affected by this change. But in the long run, as you say, then other breweries may get to that point. Absolutely, yeah. The, the change uh, was motivated by the fact by the unfair disadvantage, I think, that Big Rock was, that Big Rock had uh, versus the old markup. Uh, going forward, though, I think this allows for a, more of a window for growth for our industry, which is positive. Yeah, and look, Big Rock has, has become big, uh, as you say, but it's, it's probably right to still view it as, as a craft brew, and it probably doesn't make sense then to treat it like a big multinational like Molson Coors. Absolutely. The AGLC defines a small manufacturer, a small brewer, as under 400,000 hectoliters, and Big Rock is nowhere near that uh, threshold. So it very much was unfair that they were paying the same rate as a large 
beer company. But in fact, they fall squarely within the definition of a small craft beer producer. Yeah. So this change has been announced, takes effect next month. But uh, are, are we expecting further changes or, or what's your sense of, of where the government's at? I would expect this is a, a good policy for where our industry is at right now. It allows us to plan for future growth. It gives some certainty for Big Rock that they can start planning their business and planning to grow further. So I think it's positive from that aspect. Uh, but as an association, I mean, we're always working with the government to identify ways that we can improve the industry to provide you know, long-term stability uh, for our, our industry. This markup is something that's been changed five times over the last five years. So I think we've gotten to a level now where it's aligned with how the AGLC views a small manufacturer, and it provides us an opportunity to grow to 400,000 hectoliters, which is a really strong small craft brewery, and uh, allows us to you know make further contributions to our economy and our communities. All right, well, let's talk about this story involving uh, Red Bison because uh, you know you hate to see. Um, you know, business fail. I, I get that it happens, you know, in other industries too. The beer industry is not unique, but you know, I mean, I think to some it raises questions about whether the market's getting too crowded, whether it, it's starting to, to present challenges for small brewers when it comes to certainly getting, you know, product on tap in, in bars and restaurants. I don't know. Are we reading too much into it? What do you make of it? Well, I think it's absolutely true that every business plan is different and there's challenges with every small business and scaling a business um, and cash flow challenges and access to capital all become issues. And certainly the small brewer uh, industry is not unique in that there's lots of competition in this province now and there's only so much shelf space and only so much taps that are available to our producers. That said, I think every business is different and uh, overall the industry is growing and is growing quite quickly. Um, I think it's up to all new entrants into the industry to be very strategic and uh, what type of business they want. Um, a lot of our producers focus exclusively on just being a, a tap room where the community can gather and, and have a strong business that way. And other brewers look towards growing in retail, which is obviously challenging in developing a brand and getting in front of customers. But I think every business is unique and overall our industry is doing quite well. Here's the quote. Steve Carlton is one of the founders of Red Bison. He says, I think the number of breweries is vastly outpacing the number of beer drinkers coming into the new market. He goes on to say, um, there's more liquor stores and bars closing. There's less accounts. We had bars tell us, don't come back. We don't want to hear from any more reps. You call, you email, people don't return your calls because they're overwhelmed with 150 reps coming at them every week. Uh, now, given you know his own plight, I, I suspect then he's, he's got kind of a pessimistic view of the industry. But, it, I mean, is he speaking to some of the challenges the breweries are encountering right now? Yeah, I absolutely think there's lots of challenges uh, in terms of competition. Uh, here in Calgary, there's about 40 uh, small breweries now, um, but some are also succeeding at the same time. Uh, it is challenging to grow a brand and to get customer awareness and to have those relationships with retailers and get shelf space. Um, but beyond that, there are breweries that are succeeding in getting in front of customers. And uh, ultimately, I think our industry, Alberta beer in general, will succeed if we get more customers that are drinking big beer interested in drinking uh, small craft beer as well. So I think that's the yeah. future of our industry is converting people that are interested in beer, but also have uh, an interest in small craft beer. And I will say that the, the situation in Alberta is a little bit more compounded uh, than in other provinces, just because of the nature of our liquor model. We're the only privatized liquor model in Canada, which has a lot of strengths, but it also enables other breweries from outside the province to come and compete against our breweries here in Alberta. And the issue is that due to interprovincial trade barriers, we just don't have reciprocal access to those markets. It's very difficult for an Alberta beer 
to uh, gain distribution in Alberta and then also gain distribution in a province like Ontario because it's a very much a closed market. So other breweries from across the country have access to Alberta and they get to compete against our Alberta breweries, which adds a little bit more competition in our own marketplace, but we don't have the benefit of selling in other provinces. So that creates a further challenge for our breweries. Yeah, that's true. We, we've talked a lot about that. I mean, do you get sense, Mike, that we're getting any closer to, to addressing that? I think it's it's positive that uh, Premier Kenny has publicly recommitted to moving forward with a trade challenge against Ontario. I think that's an important aspect that we want to make sure there's some progress there. And both uh, the Premier of Ontario and the Premier here in Alberta have been very focused on decreasing interprovincial trade barriers, which is positive, of course, for freeing Alberta beer. That said, we'd always like for it to move a little bit quicker. Um, our industry is very much limited in growth because we don't have access to other markets. And so we'd love to see more uh, progress on that front so that we can get more consumers across Canada drinking Alberta beer. All right. Well, much more at alberta.beer. Mike, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Mike McNeil, Executive Director of the Alberta Small Brewers Association. His thoughts on where things stand in the industry. So uh, this tax change basically at the moment applies really just to Big Rock. But as other breweries start to get past that 50,000 hectoliters point, this could potentially impact them as well. So that's a positive, as he says, because it's going to allow other breweries in Alberta to kind of get to where Big Rock is in the longer term. Big Rock, obviously, basically being the first, now certainly the biggest craft brewery in Alberta. And and that NDP tax policy really hit them hard. Right? And, and for a policy that was aimed at, at helping Alberta-based craft brewers to have had such a negative impact on a pretty big one that resulted in layoffs and losses. I mean, that's indicative of a policy that just didn't make sense. But it is true that we have seen a lot of growth, over 120 breweries now in Alberta. And there is a lot of competition. There's a lot of competition just amongst each other. As he says, you're competing against, you know, the big multinationals. You're competing against breweries in other provinces. We have an easier time getting on the shelf in Alberta than Alberta breweries have getting on the shelf in other provinces. And not, not every brewery is looking to get on the shelf in other provinces. In fact, not every brewery is looking to get on the shelf even here. Right? There are some breweries that are content just to be the local neighborhood brewery. Come down and, and we'll pour you a pint. Right? They're not worried about bottling or canning their product and getting it in, in the liquor stores. That's just what they want to be. Obviously, different breweries have different business models, different kinds of aspirations. And not, not everyone's going to succeed. I don't think that's necessarily an indictment of Red Bison Brewery or the product they made or how they did business. It's just in, in any kind of hyper-competitive industry, some are going to succeed, some are going to fail. And at times, it's either good luck or bad luck. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.